welcome back to the Women's Wellness Podcast by the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative. This is a podcast where we talk about women's health needs throughout every stage of life, from young women through to midlife women, women's health after cancer diagnosis, and women who are living with type 2 diabetes or heart disease. On the podcast, you'll hear from some of the world's leading researchers on women's health. So I'm Professor Deborah Anderson, founder and director of the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative, and I'm also the Dean of the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney in Australia. I've spent my career dedicated to helping women to be the best that they can be. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Charlotte Seib from Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. And Dr. Seib is a nurse researcher and has worked with us on the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative for over 15 years. She has a PhD in public health and social epidemiology and has more than 15 years experience in education and research with expertise in women's health, chronic disease self-management, epidemiology and health statistics. Dr. Saib's research broadly focuses on understanding the factors that impact women's health and well-being across their lifespan. And her recent work explores how exposure to stress across the life course is associated with distinct health trajectories in women as they age. She is currently leading the Entwine Project, a Cancer Australia-funded initiative that aims to improve psychosocial well-being through the timely and accurate identification and management of distress in women with gynecological cancer. Welcome, Charlotte. So great to have you on our podcast today. Thanks for having me. Charlotte, today I want you to talk about psychological health for women and particularly for women who are undergoing or have completed cancer treatment. So to begin with, describe for us where you are today and what you can see. Today I am in my office at the Griffith University on the Gold Coast. I can see some cloudy sky and a beautiful, beautiful swimming pool, which is part of the Griffith University campus. And how do these surroundings make you feel? I really love the fact that from my office, I can actually see people exercising and running around the running track. My office is really light and quite lovely to be in. This is talking about uh, your psychological health and how particular settings and environments can really play a big part in our psychological well-being. That's correct, yes. So when we talk about psychological health, what do we mean when we're talking to each other about this concept, Charlotte? Well, psychological health is, is quite complex and it's an interaction between our mental, emotional, social and spiritual dimensions of health. What it actually is, is it comprises how we feel, what we think, how we relate to one another and also how we navigate our day-to-day -day lives. How is psychological health then different for, you know, how is it different from you and I and uh, the other women that are listening to this podcast? Because psychological health differs from person to person, what we often find is that people's experiences differ. And so when people say things like, oh, I experienced that and I got over it, it's particularly unhelpful because they haven't actually come from the perspective of that particular person who has had very unique experiences that have led them to that particular point. So Charlotte, when you're working with women and women in psychological health, what do you see are some of the differences that women, how women are interpreting their psychological health and, and how they navigate it? Psychological health doesn't necessarily mean that we're happy all the time. Uh, that is completely unrealistic. What it actually means is that we are resilient. We experience disappointments, we experience tragedies or adversity, and we overcome those. So it's about rolling with the punches. When we think about stress, 
it's a normal response and it is actually been designed to help us to overcome adversity. If we think about life and, and difficulties, stress actually can help us to jump out the way of a car or to run away from wild animals, etc. And so it is quite normal. But what happens quite frequently in modern day life is that we experience stress or stressors in ways that are not necessarily appropriate. So we perceive things that aren't necessarily a threat as being stressful. So when we look at uh, women in particular, you know, taking our women's wellness program, which you've been working on for at least the last 10 years with us, um, and I know that you've led some great initiatives in the area of stress. What do you think are some of the ways that you see women coping well with stress? Or how would they not cope well with stress? Like what would be the sorts of differences that you're seeing in, in how they're coping with these stresses from your experience, personal experience and, and uh, intellectual experience? So when you think about stress, it's actually quite normal. What happens when we get stressed is that the blood actually starts to flow to our muscles, preparing for some sort of response. Our breathing becomes more shallow. Our heart rate increases. We start to perspire. So all of those things are quite normal response to stress. Once the threat is over, generally what happens is that the stress hormones will decrease, our stress levels go down, and we go back to what's called homeostasis. What will happen if we experience repeated stressors or if we have a heightened response to stress, kind of like a meerkat who's constantly hypervigilant, what happens is that our body doesn't actually reachieve homeostasis. And what happens when we get that is that it can actually have quite a significant impact on our health. So for example, cardiologists have recognized that stress is associated with increased cardiovascular reactivity. So increased blood pressure and heart rate, et cetera. And all of those things can have a really uh, negative impact on your health over, over time. So I know you've done some work and published in the area of stress and some of the things which could lead women into maybe not uh, reacting well to stress. Can you tell us what some of those things were that you found in that study that you did? So if you're thinking about stress, some of the things that can occur with chronic or prolonged stress include changes to your metabolism. So you might have increased diarrhea or constipation. We also find that stress has quite a significant impact on your lifestyle behaviours. So what we find is that when you're stressed, you are more likely to overeat or comfort eat. And I know I'm guilty of that myself. We may be less likely to sleep or our sleep is actually disrupted. We have a, a less tendency to exercise and there's also an increase in alcohol use. Then if we're looking at um, what kind of approaches women can use just from the general population in to overcome this reaction to stress, what would be your advice there? I think that there are some really easy things that we can do to actually help us to manage stress. Mm -hmm. The thing is that they do actually require some discipline. First of all, we need to actually understand our body's own 
stress response, how we specifically respond to stress, where we actually feel it. Is it in your neck and shoulders? Is it in the pit of your stomach? Do you get heart palpitations, etc.? After we actually understand when we are stressed and how our body responds to it, we can actually implement some measures to actually reduce those um, stress responses. So the first thing we can do is actually to breathe. And I know that sounds very, very simple, but it, it certainly isn't. <laughs> that does sound simple, but it does sound <laughs> something that people could just do straight away. So there's a number of different ways. What we want to do when we're breathing is we are trying to actually activate our parasympathetic nervous system. So we're going to slow everything down. So one of the really great ways to do that is triangular breathing. So that is breathing in for four and then out for eight. In for four, out for eight. Uh, and just shutting your eyes and actually just focusing on your breath. And after 10 or so breaths, you'll notice that your body is starting to slow down and, and become more calm. Well, that sounds something that people can, you know, put in place immediately wherever they are feeling stressed. Yes. Are there any other things women can do to um, alleviate stress or manage their stress? Yes, of course. So as I said, a, an emotionally or psychologically healthy person is someone who is confident in their own skin. They tend to have a, a strong sense of self, good social connections, etc. And so when we're thinking about ways that you can actually manage stress, it's all of those things that you do to nurture yourself and to care for yourself. We often talk about stress management, that restorative sleep is actually ground zero. So getting a good night's sleep is really, really important. Um, downing your technology or your devices and actually preparing for bed, having good sleep hygiene. And we do recommend that you get a, a eight hours of sleep a night um, and trying to create some regular sleep patterns. So going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time. Other things that we can do is exercise. So exercise is fantastic for actually releasing endorphins and helping us to feel better about ourselves. So generally the recommendations are to do, I think it's 150 minutes of, of moderate activity or 75 minutes of, of vigorous activity and some weight training and some, you know, some flexibility training as well. And all of those sorts of things will help us to actually feel calm and more centered. Nutrition is important. And we talk a lot about nutrition in uh, women's wellness, as well as uh, having positive emotions and doing things that make you feel good and being connected with those that you love. Well, they sound some really good practical things that people could put in place straight away, you know, with the breathing, the triangular breathing, thinking about how they can really put exercise into their life, uh, really having some good sleep hygiene, looking at nutrition. The other thing you said is alcohol. What, what do you suggest um, in that area? Because you said that could be a trigger and something that women might lean on. Mm. The guidelines for alcohol consumption suggest women should have one to two standard drinks a night 
but what we actually find is that depending on you know your circumstances having less is probably better and certainly abstaining from alcohol because alcohol can actually change your sleep patterns and the way uh, it interrupts your REM sleep which is the rapid eye movement sleep the deep sleep and so actually reducing alcohol intake is actually a really good thing. Yes, and as we know, uh, with alcohol, it puts you to sleep straight away. But what happens is your body starts to metabolise it at about 2am in the morning. And that's when you wake up and you're Mm. awake for the next few hours and interrupts uh, women's sleep significantly. I'd like to sort of veer on to looking at what kind of effects um, cancer treatment and women who have cancer could have on one's psychological well-being because it's like an added layer, isn't it, that uh, women with cancer, I know this is your expertise, could you share with us what kind of effects do you think the cancer treatment and having cancer has on women's psychological well-being? So being diagnosed with cancer is profound. It has a significant impact on women's health. So if you can imagine a woman's health is associated with who they are and their sense of self, and also having the sense of of knowing where their lives are going, a cancer diagnosis can actually interrupt all of those things. So cancer is associated with multiple adjustments and multiple challenges. It can actually uh, affect women's sense of confidence in in life and they can often fear recurrence, et cetera. Um, It can make women more hypervigilant. So any signs or symptoms in their body that are concerning or they perceive as not being normal, they might actually perceive those as being related to cancer. We also find that cancer can be associated with distress. So, uh, and distress can be experienced in a number of different ways. So it might be low mood or a a lack of concern or care about yourself or activities of daily life to, to more significant things like suicidal ideation, et cetera. So all of those things can actually impact women when they're diagnosed with cancer. We know that for many women, cancer diagnosis is stressful and can cause distress, but it can abate over time. But for some women, those symptoms uh, don't go away and chronic and prolonged stress, as we've talked about previously, have quite a significant impact on women's health. I guess what we'd like to ask you now then is what kind of approaches or techniques can help support women's mental health and well-being during and after cancer treatment? It's funny that you talk about this because I've actually just come back from a conference where we were talking about that. I went to the Australian New Zealand Gynae Oncology Group annual scientific meeting. What we were talking about there was women's responses to distress. And I was quite lucky to actually lead a workshop there uh, for nurses managing distress. What we find is that sometimes people are reluctant to actually discuss distress. They're concerned about how they will respond, how women will respond, and they're concerned about opening Pandora's box as such and not being able to cope with, with what they actually hear from women. Having said that, one of the things that I believe very, very strongly is that the process of actually hearing women and validating their experiences is cathartic. So it is very, very important to do that because often having someone actually say, 
that's a normal response or that's common is quite is quite empowering. And so for women having the support of other women who have been through the cancer experience is actually very, very important. Uh, in terms of some of the other things that women can do, the social connectedness is really important. Having said that, one of the things that came out of our research is learning how to negotiate and communicate with people post-cancer diagnosis. So sometimes people might not know what to say or and they might say things that the woman with cancer perceives as insensitive. So it's, it's I guess, being front-footed and knowing how to actually communicate about those things. As well as that, it's about looking after yourself and doing all of those positive or healthy lifestyle behaviours that actually can improve your health and well-being. And so do you, do you just want to repeat those again and just uh, are there any extras that we'd add on for women with cancer or really are they the same as for general women? Well, what we often find for women who are treated for cancer is that the, the treatment can induce menopausal symptoms or what it can do is for women who are already menopausal it can actually exacerbate those menopausal symptoms and they can be quite unpleasant so for example hot flushes and night sweats can have a significant impact on women's health uh, so it's about learning how to manage those symptoms and some of the things that we can do include things like exercise and for women after cancer there may be some physical limitations associated with physical activity, but to actually engage in exercise that actually is appropriate and suitable for them. Also looking at sleep and sleep hygiene, certainly um, cancer treatment can actually impact on quality of sleep. It can also increase fatigue for women. And so because of that, there's a lesser tendency to actually do exercise and also to have poor sleep hygiene practices. So it's about doing all of those things that actually we know are good for us, but actually are often very, very difficult to do. Charlotte, what psychosocial support do you think is needed for women after cancer? We've talked about what women themselves could do, lifestyle behaviours, but um, is there an, an added, added layer of psychosocial support that you think is needed for women after cancer? And what's available at the moment and what are we lacking in? I think what we're increasingly seeing, particularly with breast cancer, for example, is that it's becoming almost like a chronic condition. So women are required to actually manage the ongoing effects of, of a cancer diagnosis and treatment as they re-enter the community and, and go back into their lives. And what that means is that there are some residual health effects that they're going to be experiencing that they might need support with or for. So for example, how to manage hot flushes or night sweats, etc. I look predominantly at women with gynecological cancer. And so some of the things that we see with women with gynecological cancer are not only related to uh, menopausal symptoms, but also related to changes in bowel and, and bladder habits or patterns, also potentially lymphedema in their legs, which can be quite debilitating, or changes in their genital appearance and functioning of, of genitalia. 
And that can have a significant impact on sexuality and intimacy. And so those areas that I think would actually benefit from additional supports. And I think this really leads nicely into your current project that uh, you're leading. Can you tell us a little bit about the Entwined project? What's your approach and um, what outcomes have you found? So Entwine is a project that has looked at developing a distress screening tool specifically for women with gynecological cancer. We, what we have found is that generic screening tools to identify distress are fantastic, but for women with some cancers, so for example, gynecological cancer, some of the concerns that they identify are not actually detected in those, those uh, traditional generic screening tools. So what we have done is we have developed a tool, we've uh, tested it quite thoroughly, and we've actually established that it works and that it's valid. And so we're actually now looking at uh, rolling it out throughout gynecological cancer services in Australia. The great thing about this tool is that it actually detects sources of distress that will not actually otherwise be identified. And what we actually found is that the five top causes of distress for women with gynecological cancer were actually identified by the new tool, but not the generic screening tool. So on the Entwine project, what was the potential impact do you think will have on practice with regards to, you know, health professionals dealing with women with these gynecological cancers? Because I think you've identified really clearly what some of the extra distresses would be for women and stresses with those um, bowel and bladder problems with sexuality and the changes in genitalia, the potential lymphedema in the legs. So having done this project and being able to identify it, what do you think is that potential impact on practice? So what we're actually looking at doing in our program is actually not just developing a distress screening tool, but now we're actually moving forward, hoping to actually develop tools that will actually support women who are diagnosed with cancer and also clinicians. So we want clinicians to feel comfortable to actually ask and discuss distress. And what we know is that only about a quarter or a third of services currently actually routinely offer distress screening. So if we can actually provide clinicians with the resources and skills to actually feel comfortable to talk about distress and train them in how to use the tool, we'll be able to identify distress more easily in women. And the great thing about that is that unrecognised distress or stress um, can have a, a significant impact on, on health over uh, a longer term. So in identifying it early, we can actually look at developing interventions that actually can support women, you know, before things become overt. Well, look, that makes a lot of sense. And as we've heard, women um, after cancer have their own set of extra stresses that they may may impact on them and particularly with gynecological cancers and the reproductive cancers like breast cancer. So in, in summary, Charlotte, if you could give some sage advice to women to decrease their stress, what would be your approach? One of the things that I have noticed working with women and being a woman myself is that we are often, we're caregivers and we are often in multiple caring roles. And because of that, sometimes our own needs come 
second. So one of the things that I would actually recommend is that women give themselves permission to look after themselves, give themselves permission to actually take the time to do the things that are actually going to improve their health and well-being, taking time to relax and breathe every day, to eat well, give themselves permission to get up and do exercise rather than, you know, folding washing or uh, whatever else it might be. We need to actually recognise that in doing all of those self-care activities, we're actually going to be healthier, happier versions of ourselves and actually potentially more productive. That's a really good um, take-home message. And I think also the one thing that women might be sacrificing for in their caregiving, either of older adults or the children or uh, running the family, by not putting themselves first and looking after themselves, they're actually second-rate versions of of all of those roles Mm. that they're playing um, in society sometimes. Um, So really good advice. So today I've been speaking on the podcast with Dr. Charlotte Side from Griffith University. Thank you so much for being part of our Women's Wellness Research Collaborative podcast today, Charlotte. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Women's Wellness Podcast from the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative. You can find us at wellnessresearch.org.au.